Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We want to put our focus on the Word of God because it is the truth. The enemy loves to bring lies. The Bible says he's the father of lies. So we want to know what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. Our first question comes from our study from last week, and it's good to see you guys. Glad to have you joining us. Uh, But our first question comes from our study from this last uh, weekend where we talked about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And the question is, if Jesus shows us the Father, why was he a man of sorrows? If Jesus shows us the Father, why was he a man of sorrows? In other words, the question was, is God weeping? Is God full of sorrow because Jesus was? We know that we saw Jesus empathize with Mary and weep with Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Um, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. We also know in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus said, I am so sorrowful that I think I'm going to die. And I think that that in, in itself uh, is, is Jesus taking our sorrow and our grief on him. I not only believe that he became a substitute for us on the cross, but that he bore our sorrow and grief, as it says in Isaiah 53. Uh, And so Jesus was sorrowful there. But he was also said, when the disciples asked him, when Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Jeremiah, which was a man of sorrow. Here's what I think. I think that Jesus sees mankind bound in sin. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Think of the compassion that he showed to tax collectors and to a woman caught in the act of adultery, to a prostitute that came and wept at his feet and wiped her tears with her hair and told her that her sins were forgiven. Oftentimes, religious people see, them, see themselves as better than people that are bound by sin. But Jesus saw people bound by sin as if they were in chains. And he came to set us free from being in chains. That's why Romans tells us that we should not let sin reign in us anymore because we have been set free from that, which is an absolutely amazing thing. And I think that this is the reason that Jesus was a man of sorrows, why he was acquainted with grief. We also saw in the Old Testament that God said that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he pleaded with Israel, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, sin, for why would you die? And we see that God clearly gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set you free from a life of destruction, a life of separation from God, an eternity of separation from God. And this is why it breaks his heart. If you have any other questions about our study this week, uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem weeping. We also talked about him predicting that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in 70 AD, just as it was, and other predictions that Jesus made that came true, one of them in 1973, or at least started to in 1973. All right, so it is good to see you guys. I'm going to go ahead and bring in uh, one of our questions here. And um, this is, uh, let's see, um, Andre got first again. So Andre gets that first question. He is ready to go on top of it. And uh, always a challenging question, right? 
1 Samuel 5.3 describes Abigail as a woman of good understanding. Is the author implying Abigail was a prophetess? Abigail's statement to David, 1 Samuel 25.30, appears to support it. All right, so um, thank you. Let me go ahead and pull that up. I'm going to go ahead and make sure I turn this on. A couple of things I had to do here that I hadn't done yet. Um, so I'm going to go to my Bible here. And I want to pull up 1 Samuel 25, 30. So if you guys remember Abigail, Abigail is the woman who's married to a man who um, insults David and she saves her husband's life. um, And um, she ends up becoming one of the the wives of David, Abigail does. Um, And that's not necessarily a good thing, by the way but she does end up becoming one of David's wife. And so is Abigail a prophetess and does 1 Samuel 25, 30 support it? So I'm working out on how to get these scriptures up quicker, by the way. Right now, this is what I still have, but pretty soon uh, I'll be able just to type in 1 Samuel and go to it instead of having to kind of maneuver like I'm maneuvering now. So let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. Make sure I've got the right one. 1 Samuel 25, verse... 30. All right. And we're going to come back a little bit. We'll start reading. Well, we'll start reading from verse uh, 28 and see if we can figure things out. All right. So we're bringing the iPhone here. And it says then in verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant for the Lord will certainly make for me, for my Lord, an enduring house because my Lord uh, fights and battles of the fights, the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found you in throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be found in the, the bundle of living with the Lord your God and with the lives of your enemy, sling out as from the pocket of the sling. Now here's your verse. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done. For my Lord, according to all the God that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. All right. So um, it certainly seems to me that she is operating in the uh, as a prophetess there. That's, that's what it seems like to me. Um, I think that the passage doesn't say she is, but it certainly looks like it. And there's nothing in the Bible to say that there could not be prophetesses. In fact, there were in the New Testament, we know that there were certain daughters who were prophetesses and that they could hold that role. Um, And I think that is is good. So it seems like she is. I had never really even thought about that, uh, Andre, but it certainly looks like it. Um, I would want to take a little bit more to make sure that that's what it is. as I, you know, be, take some more time uh, to be able to go back and maybe read the entire chapter. Uh, but I think that there's some great insight there. And it looks like she was a prophetess. We have a question from Matt. Matt Crossman, good to see you. As always, Matt says, um, was Jesus insulting Herod when he called him a, flo- a fox in Luke 13, 32? Um, so, I think the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus in Luke 13, 32 and say that Herod wants to see you. Herod's looking for you. And Jesus responds. Let me go ahead. Let me take time to look it up here. Um, Luke 13, 32. 
uh, I think Jesus responds with, you know, go tell the little fox, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there. Um, let's see, Luke 13, 32. Again, the way that I got to go through this is a little bit tedious, but I think it's good to be able to look at these passages. And um, yeah, so let's go ahead and bring that back up on the screen for you here. So it says, um, nevertheless, um, and he said to them, this is when, well, let's just go back and read it all. Verse 31, on that day, very same day, Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will be perfected. So talking about his resurrection. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, the day following, for I cannot be that a prophet shall perish outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is talking about his own death. And I think that to answer your question, Matt, what happened to Matt's question here? Let's see where we're at. Um, let me bring Matt's question back in. I'll find it later. Um, so Matt's question was, um, was Jesus insulting Herod when he called him a fox? Uh, I'm not sure what a fox was in their day. When I was a, when I was in, uh, as a teenager, if a, if a girl was a fox, that meant she was good looking, right? Uh, so it means things in different times. But I think that a fox is kind of cunning. It gets into places where it shouldn't get into. And I think that's the reference that Jesus is making there. I would like to look into what exactly it meant in their day, but I do think it was an insult. I don't think that it was um, that it was somehow him complimenting him, but he was saying, I'm going to be perfect on the third day. He can't kill me before my time. And what we can really learn from that is that God's hands on our lives. The Bible says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And I believe that you and I have a time that we are going to die. It's an appointed time. I think we could tempt God and move that time up. You say, well, it's appointed for me to die, so I'm going to go ahead and be careless. Eh, you, you got to be careful with that because what if you move your appointment up? If you say, I'm going to go play on the freeway, you get hit by a car and you die and you thought, I, I, I had an appointment. God's like, well, you moved it up. And so, but Jesus is making the point that he's going to die when he's going to die and Herod is not going to be able to do anything uh, to make him die. So I do think, Matt, that that was a pejorative term that Jesus was using. Um, this is Herod who killed John the Baptist. It is Herod who Jesus will stand before and not say anything. He will be completely silent in front of him. So I do think that that term is, as I said, um, not a good term. Um, all right, we have a question here from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Again, Albert's questions are always great. Uh, hello, uh, Jesus answered questions from the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate, yet he refused to answer Herod. We just talked about that. Is this an example of casting your pearls before swine or is there another reason? Uh, I think we're going to have to speculate some, Albert, but maybe we could kind of talk this through and see uh, what we can come to. Um, maybe he knew that Herod would not respond and so he didn't reveal it to him. I think of the Old Testament passage where God says, my people constantly put things in front of them that cause them to sin. Should I allow myself to be heard by them at all? In other words, they weren't in a place of seeking God. They were seeking idols. And so he was quiet before him. 
Herod wanted to see him, wanted to see the miracles that he did, and Jesus wasn't going to do any of that. It may be that he took the life of John the Baptist. And now Jesus is standing in front of the very guy that took the life of John the Baptist, and Jesus knows his life is not going to be taken by, by Herod. And he just will not answer him. I think he probably knows that Herod will not respond and believe, and so he's silent before him. Uh, the, it's, it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament as well, because Isaiah 53 says, like a sheep before the shears, he is silent. It's believed also that during the scourging, he was silent when criminals would confess their crimes to try to make the lashes lighter. At least I'm told that. Um, and Jesus was silent during that time. So I think if, if someone I was close to, if a cousin I was close to died and I was standing before him, I might be silent too. But I think that Jesus knows something a little bit more about Herod and that he is not open to the gospel at all maybe even controlled a little bit by his wife. Because remember, it was his wife, Herodias, that asked for the head of John the Baptist. Thank you, Albert, for your question. I really appreciate that. Good to see you guys here and good to have all of you guys joining us. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, you can ask questions about the Bible, about uh, prophecy, about apologetics. Uh, you can ask passage, uh, questions about difficult passages. Uh, we also are connected to our latest service on Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, making predictions in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, we are always open to answer questions from the last study. So if you have questions, if you were there or you watched it online and you have questions about it, um, then please feel free to give us a question. Just put the word question in front of it. Then read your question a couple times. Make sure that it makes sense and add references if you have them. Look up the exact reference instead of just saying Luke 14. Give us the, the exact address so that we can look it up and we can kind of talk through it and see if we can um, take a look at exactly how um, and, and what the passage is meaning. All right, so it's good to have you guys here. I hope you guys are blessed. We have a question from Jari. Jari says, ESV2, uh, English Standard Version, Timothy, 1.7 says, self-control, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, and a sound mind. The same as self-control. So, uh, says self-control didn't give us a spirit. Self-control, God did not give us a spirit. All right, let me look it up. And I'm going to look it up in the King, uh, New King James just because that's what I've got up here, Jari. And so 1 Timothy 1.7 says, 1 Timothy? Oh, 2 Timothy. Ah, I get it now. It's the ESV version, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. All right, so you're asking about self-control. Um, didn't God give us a spirit? All right, let me, let me just read it here because I'm, I'm having a little bit of difficulty with your question there, Jari. So let me bring the scripture up here and we'll see if we can make sense of it. Um, so it says in verse seven, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so you're talking about the ESV, which says something different. Let me go ahead and see if I can get the ESV up here. Looks like I can. 
Let's see what that says. All right, so yeah, it says something slightly different, doesn't it? For God is, uh, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. All right, well, let me go ahead and go. I'm going to go out of here for a second. I'm going to pull up my strongs, and I'm going to see if I can figure out what that word is that is in there for self-control and that's used differently in the different translations. 2 Timothy 1, 7. Good question, Jari, by the way. All right, so self-control or sound mind. That's the two different ways that it's translated. Let me go ahead and bring you back in here. I have just a Strong's Concordance up here. That's not what I wanted. That's what I wanted. All right. Um, Let's see. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. So that's the King James Version. I'm going to click on sound mind here. There's the Greek word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Discipline, self-control, sound mind. All right, so the word in the Greek means to be disciplined, to be self-controlled, and to have a sound mind. So I can see why one translation would translate it sound mind and another translation would translate it self-control because the um, because of the word. Let's also take a look at where it's from. It says it's from 4994, which is to make a sound mind, to discipline or correct, to teach, to be sober. So it comes from a word that means to make a sound mind, to make discipline. So discipline and sound mind are connected in this. Let's see if I can go back here. Yep. Nope. Yeah. So um, discipline and sound mind are connected in this word. Um, I would want to do a little more of a word study on it, but I can kind of see how it's saying a sound mind and self-discipline would be the same thing. If you have a sound mind and you are self-disciplined, you're, you have control. Um, yeah, discipline, sound mind, self-control. I can all see how that's the same thing. Where we might, if we just read sound mind, we might think, well, my mind's just healthy. If we just read self-control, then I just need to be controlled. But now we know that it's connected. That a sound mind is a, ma- a mind that is self-controlled, is a mind that is disciplined. And so God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a mind that is disciplined, that is self-controlled, and that is a sound mind through all of those things. So, and, and here, by the way, Jari, it is uh, easy for us to see how the Bible, looking at different translations, can help us understand the Greek a little bit better. One of the things that I'll do in a Bible study, and I did it this week for the teaching that I'm doing tonight out of Galatians chapter three, I took the word bewitched and I looked at 28 different translations to see how they translated that word. A handful of translations, the majority of them used the word bewitched. A handful of them said under a spell, and then there were two that used different things. And so the word literally means to cast an evil eye. And I was able through those, looking at the different translations to be able to come up with what the word means in the Greek. The Greek is a much more colorful language. There's one word for love in English. There's four words for love in Greek. You phileo a friend, you agape 
your wife, you eros your wife, which is a, we get our word erotic from it. It's that, it's that name word for passion. You sturge something. These are four words for love, but they all are, are love in the English. I say, I love pizza and I love my wife. Well, let's hope I sturge pizza and I eros and agape and phileo my wife. And so you can see the differences. So when you look back at certain things in the Bible and you start reading the different translations, the translators were struggling over these particular words. And so they came up with those different meanings. So when we're studying the Bible, it's good to not only do a word study, but to look at the different versions because these guys putting these versions together are scholarly men when it comes to Greek and Hebrew. And when they struggle over a passage and two different translations, especially good ones, I consider the New King James to be a good translation, the NASB, the ESV to be good translations. When they give us different meanings uh, on this, out of the same word, then we know that the word carries something more than what the English word does. And so, um, very astute, Jari. I appreciate that. I think that, yeah, I think that's a great question. So we have a question here. Let me get Jari's question out. Jari, again, good to see you. And we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands, good to see you um, here today. Uh, those are your puppies, cute. Uh, question, um, no disrespect to those with severe anxiety. Okay, but I've often wondered if they are truly spirit-filled. Why all the anxiety? All right, so thanks, fact check these hands, I appreciate that. Um, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of a story. Let me tell you a story. It reminds me of when I was in the United Methodist Church, I had committed my life to Christ, and I also sang in the choir. I had trouble carrying a tune. And I remember the choir director was a woman, and she said to me, I think if you get filled with the Spirit, that you'll sing on key like being filled with the Spirit would do that. The interesting thing is I can pretty much sing on key when I'm singing like someone. If I'm singing like Neil Diamond or like Johnny Cash, I could sing on key. When I just try to sing, awful. I'm off key. Um, I am filled with the Spirit, but I still don't sing on key. So being filled with the Spirit doesn't cause, uh, cause all of our problems to be taken care of. Paul had an infirmity in the flesh we don't know what that was, but an infirmity means illness. He was obviously spirit-filled and he was still sick. And I know you're not asking that, you're asking about our mind. So someone might have anxiety because of what they've been through. PTSD, right? They might have something they've gone through and they have anxiety. And being filled with the spirit leads them, guides them, gives them power, but it doesn't take care of all of the things that uh, all of the difficulties are problems uh, that a person has. Uh, you could also have anxiety that is that comes from uh, having some kind of a problem. Things just aren't working right in the mind. The mind is an organ that can have defects just like the liver can, just like the heart can, but it's going to manifest itself in different ways. And we just saw that that passage, sound mind, doesn't necessarily mean not having any problems in the mind. It means self-controlled and a sound mind, thinking right. And so 
I don't think that we could ever go to a passage that would say to us that being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that we're not going to have any struggles mentally. What about someone that has Alzheimer's? What about someone that has um, some other kind of a mental deterioration taking place and they're filled with the Spirit, but their mind just has a certain problem that's with it? So, uh, fact check these hands. I don't think that um, I don't think that being filled with the Spirit has anything to do with whether or not we're going to have a sound mind or not. I think um, we could talk about a lot of things that happen when we're filled with the Spirit. We received a gift that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about the Spirit blowing like a wind. We don't know where it came from. We don't know where it's going. So the Spirit leads us in ways that we don't always understand. Jesus told the disciples, remain in Jerusalem, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, just like God can heal someone, God could heal them of a mental issue. But there can be chemical imbalances, the dopamine, the the serotonin in the brain just isn't right. It's just not correct. And I'm not one of those pastors who believes that you can't have a mental illness, that a mental illness is either demonic or that a mental illness is um, means you're not filled with the Spirit. I don't think that that's the case at all. Fact check these hands. I think that there are people who are mentally ill, obviously, and it's not some demonic spirit. And you say, well, why a lot of times does someone who's mentally ill have some kind of a demonic manifestation? And I think maybe there's a couple reasons there. Number one, I think that they might get obsessed with that. Their mind has problems and they might get obsessed with it. It may be that Satan's a creep and he's taking advantage of them the best way that he, that he can. And that is spiritually attacking someone who has mental illness, which you would think would be off bounds, but Satan is just horrible, right? He's a horrible, awful person. And um, so, um, and, and I don't think, by the way, that it's disrespectful to someone with some severe anxiety. Um, you might, yeah, I think other mental issues could fall in lines with these, um, but being spirit-filled never says that it would handle those things. I can't think of a passage that would say that being spirit-filled would take care of those kind of things. All right, fact check these hands. Thank you very much for your question. I appreciate it. I hope you do have a good day. Uh, We have a question from Facebook. It says, in the King James Version, Acts 12, 3 and 4, it says, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then it says, later, Easter. Were there two festivals, a pagan one and Passover? Um, Why did Herod wait? All right, let's go take a look at Acts 12. Let me get back to my Bible here. And I'm going to go ahead and take time to pull up Acts 12. And we're going to start in verses 3 and 4. So James is killed and Peter is imprisoned. Let's go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. Make sure I get the right one this time. There we go. And it says, about this time, Herod laid 
violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So this is the first disciple to be killed. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. So I think your answer to why did he wait is answered by the text because he was waiting for unleavened bread to be done. Um, let me look at the King James now. I'm just going to do this while you guys are watching. I hope it doesn't make you sick to uh, go through here. But I want to, where's, where, let's get to the King James. Sorry, I probably should. Let me do this. I'm just going to go ahead and take it off while I find it. There you go. And now I can find King James Version, which of course I found really quick. All right. So now I'm going to bring you guys back in. Let's read what the King James Version says. Um, so we'll go back up to the beginning. We'll read the whole thing here. We'll read from verse one. Now about the time, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then, uh, then were the days of unleavened bread when he had apprehended him and put him in prison and delivered him. And it goes on to talk about, you know, being delivered. Oh, there we go. Intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. All right, so now let's do this. Let's go back to our, let's go back to, this is Acts 12, 3 and 4, right? Let's go back to Strong's. Let's see, it's, it's King James, so it should tell us probably that that word is added in, is probably what we're going to find out, that the word Easter isn't there but that it was added in in the New King James Bible. And I got a little bit to say about that if that is indeed the case. So let me get there. Again, it's a little bit tedious to be able to do it, but I think it's worth it. Acts 12, 3 and 4. All right, let me bring you back up on here. So here I've got my Strong's Concordance up, and I see where it says Easter in verse 4. Let me click on that word for there and of Chaldean origin, the Passover, the meal, the day, the festival, the special Passover, the sacrifice, Easter or Passover. So this would be the same time that Jesus was killed, right? Um, Let me go back now and see if he is using the same word when it says, let me see here, um, now on that day, carrying the hands of the church and killed the brother James. We saw that it pleased them, for it was the days of unleavened bread. So that's a different word. So that's the reason the King James Bible did it. Okay? Um, let me tell you what I think is going on here. That's, that's interesting. Good stuff. Kara. Uh, Kara um, and Rod. Um, So I think what's going on here is the King James Version, written in 1611. And I don't know how many many times they have updated it since then. I know it's been updated some. 
And there are people that believe that the 1611 King James Version is inspired in itself, that it's an inspired version. Instead of just taking manuscripts that are copies of the inspiration and that God preserving his word from generation to generation, like he said in Psalms 12, 6 and 7, which we believe that he did wholeheartedly, they translated the word for Passover as Easter. And I think that that would be a mistake. I don't know if you know where the word Easter comes from, but it comes from um, the worship of a false god in the spring. And um, I try not to use Easter. We're not legalistic about it. If someone, um, one of the worship groups says, um, Happy Easter, I use Resurrection Sunday. I'm so glad to be able to celebrate the resurrection here on this Resurrection Sunday, on that first Resurrection Sunday, just because I know that it causes some people heartburn when they hear the word Easter. So I really didn't know that it was in the King James Version. I would say they just should have translated it Passover and not Easter. It isn't two different words. Um, the, the Strong's Concordance probably puts Easter in there because it's taking the words from the King James Bible and it's carrying them over and it was translated Easter so they translated it over that way. And I think I told you why Herod waited, because he wanted to wait till after unleavened bread. Remember, James was killed around the same time that Jesus was killed, but James probably right before Passover, and then he wanted to bring him out after Passover and go ahead and have him killed. So very, again, very insightful, great questions. I love it. And uh, I think that this is Part of the benefit of being able to do this is we can take a look at all of these different questions and, um, and be able uh, to answer them. I'm trying to see if I brought my water in. I didn't, so I'm gonna have to uh, just survive. So we have a question now from Annika. Annika, it's good to see you. Uh, Annika says, question, what are your thoughts on the zodiac signs? Is it possible that God put the gospel in the stars as some suggest? Um, yeah, so in Genesis, it says that God gave the stars and the sun and the moon as signs and seasons. And so people put the zodiac together to put the gospel in the zodiac. And I don't have that in front of me. Uh, I've seen it before. Um, I know a couple of pastors that have taught it, that it is something that is true. And I don't know. It seems to me, I know Orion is mentioned in the Bible, who is the hunter. Uh, and I think that one of the other zodiac signs are in the Bible. So it seems like God gave us the constellations and that he may very well have put the gospel in the skies. Uh, if I'm remembering correct, I'm fairly impressed when I see it put together. And, and maybe you guys can, can help me out on that because it's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, I think that the constellations themselves were put there by God for us to see and navigate and move. Remember, before GPSs, they had to use the stars to actually navigate, and they did it very efficiently and very effectively. And so um, that's my thoughts on the zodiac sign. Obviously, people can use them falsely and for false religion, and we should stay away from that. It's, it's a false kind of gospels. And we should stay as far, as far away from that part of it as we can. But I think the fact that you can put them together to see the gospel. Uh, also, the names that are given in Genesis 
come together to make a statement that's a strong statement about the gospel as well, which is pretty powerful. And I've done that before in studies and don't remember it off the top of my head either. So uh, sorry about that. All right. So uh, again, good to see you guys. If you guys are joining us for the very first time, it's really good to have you here. I hope you guys are blessed. I hope God's doing a, a real strong work. We have a service in a couple of hours, actually an hour and eh, an hour and 20 minutes. Now we'll be in Galatians chapter three. We're gonna be looking at what Paul meant when he called the Galatians foolish and bewitched. The word bewitched there, as I said earlier, means to give an evil eye. What did he mean by that? What does it mean to us today when we give in to false doctrines? Are we being bewitched by those false doctrines? We have another question here from Brenda. Brenda comes to us from YouTube. Uh, Brenda says, did Jesus ever break any laws, either Jewish or Roman? All right, that's an interesting question. It's, uh, again, one of the reasons that I love our Q&A. Uh, oftentimes, I'm thinking about things that I haven't really ever thought about when, when you're asking these questions. Um, I have thought about whether or not Jesus ever broke the Sabbath law because um, the disciples go through the corners and they of, of a field, which means they were poor, by the way, because the corners of the field were for the poor and, and sojourners. He rub, They rub off the chaff and they eat the wheat. Suddenly, there pops up the scribes and Pharisees that tell them that their disciples are breaking the law. They also claim Jesus broke the law when he healed on the Sabbath. Now, when you go back and you look at the laws on the Sabbath, it was lawful for you to help an animal that had fallen into a ditch. It was lawful to help someone, and they added their own rules and laws to it. So, Jesus never broke the law. I'm talking about the Old Testament law. But Jesus did teach us, and this is really interesting, that there were exceptions in the Old Testament law. He said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and that the Son of God is Lord over the Sabbath, which I think he was saying to them, if I chose to break the Sabbath law, that wouldn't be a problem. When Jesus touched the leper, you weren't supposed to touch lepers according to the law. But as soon as Jesus touched him, he was healed. So did Jesus technically break the law? Was there an exception? But remember, when David was running from Saul, he went to the priest and they gave him the showbread that isn't lawful for him to eat. But because his life was in jeopardy, there was an exception. I also think about where Jesus said, Moses gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart, which means that the law that God didn't want there to be a divorce divorce for them, but God allowed it. I think of God not wanting them to have a king, but allowing them to have a king and even giving provisions for a king before they demanded a king, even though God didn't want them to have a king. So there's interesting aspects of the law that God put into place that had exceptions. Did Jesus ever break the law? I don't believe that he did. Uh, I think he broke their law they rewrote what the Sabbath was, and then they broke it. I believe Jesus kept it. Had Jesus broken the law, if you could go to a passage and find one where he does break the law, I don't think you can. But if you can go to one where he does break the law, then I don't think that that gives us any kind of a problem because he is son of man over the law as well. But I believe that he kept the law. He was without sin, for sure. The Bible says he was out, was out sin. 
And if breaking a Roman law would have been sin, what if, um, what if Rome had a law that he couldn't teach in a certain place? I don't think that, that Jesus, yeah, I'm just trying to think that through. I'm trying to think out loud at this point. Um, what if the Romans had a law that you, you couldn't go down a road on a certain day? And Jesus went down the road on that certain day. Or what if Jesus didn't know, being human, all the laws of the Romans and so broke some of the, the Roman laws? I don't think that that would be sin. So I'm going to say, Brenda, Brendan, sorry, that the answer to this is Jesus did not break the law and did not sin. We know he didn't sin because the Bible says that he was tempted in every way we are tempted and yet without sin. And I'm going to say that he did not break the law but it does bring up a lot of interesting questions about the law, exceptions in the law, and provisions that God made in the law that weren't what his desire was. So sometimes the law is presented as something that it never really was. It was given to the children of Israel in a specific time that they could serve and follow God in their culture the best that they could. And it didn't mean that there weren't provisions for them because they were going to do things. And if they were going to do it, there needed to be protections. That's why God gave them the, the laws of divorce so that the woman couldn't be taken advantage of who was being dismissed. And God gave them that for the hardness of their heart. If you guys have more questions about that, we can talk about that a little bit later on. But I think that's a really interesting question. Another good, um, really interesting question. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad you're here. If you have a question, put the word question in front of it, reread it a couple of times after you write it out, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it, and we'll get to them in order. We have a question from Paul in, uh, from Facebook, and Paul says, there are several places in the Bible where Jesus heals and performs a miracle, but then tells them not to tell anyone. For example, when he healed a blind man in Mark 8, 26. Why does Jesus not warn others to know of miracles in some cases? So I think the answer to this is when you go to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he's healing and he's telling people not to tell anyone. And I think the, maybe we get a clue in John chapter two when he tells his mother about turning the water into wine. My time isn't yet. He doesn't want people, people are already going to try to force him to be king and he moves through their midst, it seems supernaturally, not allowing them to make him king. And so some people say that because Jesus said to certain people, don't tell anyone this happened. I think Jairus was one of them whose daughter was raised from the dead and he said, don't tell anyone. And the Bible says Jairus went out and told everyone. So he did it. He just didn't listen to what Jesus said. Um, but I think it's not because he's got a secret that people are trying, Jesus had a secret and, and he told people not to tell him because of his secret. I don't think that's it at all. I think he doesn't want things to get out of hand. His time isn't yet and he's controlling the situation kind of like he was with Herod saying, look, I'm not gonna perish outside of Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem, that's where I'm gonna die. And I'm not gonna die before that. And Herod's not gonna be able to kill me before that. And so I think that he told people, don't tell anybody. What a hard thing to do. Uh, I think he healed a leper and told him not to tell anybody. He healed a blind man, told him not to tell anybody. Uh, he healed, um, I think he raised somebody from the dead. Again, Jairus' daughter 
Talitha Kumi took her by the hand, right? Talitha Kumi in the Aramaic term and uh, said, little girl arise and not to tell anyone. Later on in his ministry, he didn't give those commands. Uh, the, the blind man in Luke that's outside of Jericho as Jesus is entering, who hears the commotion, calls to Jesus, gets healed, follows him praising God. Jesus doesn't tell him, now we're at the end of his ministry. He doesn't tell him to not tell anyone. So I think the beginning of his ministry, he wanted to kind of keep a rap, little bit of a wraps on who he was, didn't want the word to get out there that much. But later on, uh, he didn't mind so much. All right, Paul, thank you for the question. Good question. I appreciate it. So, um, yeah, we'll let that one go. That's funny. Um, it's good to see you guys. Now you guys are going to go, let me go look in the, the, the uh, uh, let me look at the uh, comments to see what was funny that he wasn't going to bring on. All right. Um, Brendan, I think that's right. Jesus did. I see you making a statement here that he broke traditions um, more than the law. Yes, I believe that that is the case. He broke, um, he broke their laws. It's interesting when, and if you have a question, just write the word question down, then write out your question and then go ahead and submit it and we'll get to it. Um, it is interesting that they rewrote the Sabbath. They added their traditions to it and then they claimed Jesus broke it. And Sabbatarians do the same thing today. I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath like he is the fulfillment of sacrifices. We don't have a high priest today because Jesus became our high priest. We don't have a sacrifice today because Jesus gave us his sacrifices. And I believe that we don't have to keep the Sabbath, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments, because it was to Israel and Jesus became the fulfillment of that. And today people will rewrite the Sabbath. They'll say Sabbath is going to church and you guys are breaking the Sabbath. Well, the Bible never said that it was breaking the, the, uh, the Sabbath uh, to, to not go to synagogue. They were supposed to remember God and not do any work on that day. So they put things together and then, and then they claim that you're breaking it. So I like to tell them, I'm a Sabbatarian. Jesus became my fulfillment and I am not under the law. If, if keeping the Sabbath can save you, like some Sabbatarians say, some just believe it's what you're supposed to do. Others believe if you don't keep the Sabbath on Saturday, you're not saved. If that could save you, then the Bible would say something about that in the New Testament, but it doesn't. They rewrite it, make it say something different than what it says, and then they claim that we are not keeping it. All right, so um, we have a couple more questions here. We have a question from Jari. Go ahead and bring that in here. Jari says, follow up. Uh, will we eat in heaven since nothing dies? Also, will we have to use the restroom, brush our teeth, rake leaves? Uh, how will conversation work in the new heaven and the new earth? All right, Jari, thank you for your question. Uh, again, these questions are really hard to answer, right? Um, will we eat in heaven? Jesus ate. Will we go to the bathroom in heaven? I don't think so. We brush our teeth in heaven? I don't know. I doubt it. Um, will we rake leaves? I don't think so. Um, will our conversations work in heaven? I think we'll speak in whatever the heavenly language is and we'll probably talk to each other. 
where we'd be able to like Star uh, Trek, be able to use our minds to talk to each other. I don't know. All of these questions are curious, but they're out of the, the realm of really being able to talk about those. What we do know is that we are going to be in a body that is going to be changed and is going to be like Jesus. That is what we do know. So uh, Kay Fox says, and good to see you, Kay. Kay says, um, Jesus admitted that David broke the law with the bread. Was there rabbinical law, biblical law, etc.? Thank you. Um, no, it was the it was the Torah. It was the law. It was either out of Exodus or Deuteronomy that they were told that no one else could eat that showbread. But this teaches us that, well, like the exception for the Sabbath, you could do no work on the Sabbath, but if one of your animals fell into a pit, you could get the animal back out. Or if your neighbor's animal fell in a pit, you could get the animal out. That would have been work. So there were exceptions to the laws. And the exception would be that David and his men were running. Their lives were at stake. They needed food. And so because of that, God allowed them to be able to break the law without holding them bound to it. There were exceptions to the law. And again, I think this is really important in our understanding about the law because sometimes we get the idea that they, they, they weren't to help guide Israel through their, their time, their culture, but that it was statements that were meant for everyone of all time. And that's a mistake. Because the Bible says, once the law brought us to Christ, we no longer needed the law. The law was a tutor. And once the law brought us to Christ, we no longer need the tutor. We don't need the law. We're set free from it. The law showed us our sin. The law is good in that it showed me that I sinned. It says, you know, not to bear false witness. And I've done that. And so I know that I've sinned because of the law, but the law could not save, it says in the book of Hebrews. But Jesus saves to the uttermost. So the purpose of the law was to guide Israel through their time that they were under the theocracy and until the time that Jesus came on the scene and freed us from the law and brought us out from under uh, that very law. All right, so thank you very much, Kay. I appreciate it. Good to see you. And let's see if we have any more questions. All right. I think we're done. Uh, it's good to see you guys. It's been good to hang out with you. We will have another Q&A uh, next, next Wednesday, Saturday. We'll have another Q&A next Saturday, uh, this weekend. Uh, yeah, Renee has one more question here. I've got a few minutes that I can go ahead and take that. So, Renee has a question. Can you tell me about prayer and fasting? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, that's a broad topic, right? Uh, and prayer and fasting. But prayer is seeking God, and we want to do it with fervency. You connect prayer to fasting. Fasting is when you don't eat in order to pray. And by denying yourself your food, you are doing something with fervency. You're actually saying, this is important to me. I'm not going to eat while I'm praying for this because I really want this to come to pass. You pray and you fast. I also believe fasting is connected to grieving so that when you grieve, you don't want to eat. And so something strikes you and you want to pray for it. And so you pray and fast. Jesus talked about certain kind of demons that only came out through prayer and fasting. 
I don't know that that meant that it would give you more power spiritually to cast out demons if you prayed and fast, or that because there was a fervency in your fasting and praying that God answered that prayer because of that fervency. So without being any more specific, um, kind of a broad topic, Renee, without any nuance there, I think that's um, what I can go ahead and give you. I thought I saw one more question here. All right. So, um, all right. So, thank you guys for joining us. It's been good to have you here. I hope that you guys are blessed the rest of the day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, always good to interact with you. I love the community here. I love what God's doing. And uh, we will see you uh, this coming up weekend, Saturday. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have another Q&A. And uh, it will be Mother's Day. So, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms that are out there. Uh, we're going to be covering Jesus cleansing the temple and um, this weekend. So, I look forward to seeing you guys there on Mother's Day. All right? And um, yep, I'm, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm getting uh, more questions here. Um, all right, so let's just bring this in. So, I've got just a few minutes. Um, so, Kat says, I asked this question last week, but you had to leave before the answer. Just wondering, have you heard of Joe Biden's name means um, Allah's judgment? Um, I have heard something about that, but I think it's a myth. And that's, I haven't looked it up. So, I'm speaking ignorantly now. Ignorantly just meaning, and some people say, yeah, you usually do that. No, I just don't know. Um, but I'm going to say that sounds like a myth to me. So, um, if I remember, I'll look it up. Some of you guys can take it and look it up as well. Maybe shoot me over a comment um, and you can get a hold of me or you can write me a comment on, on YouTube um, and I answer them. So, um, all right. So, thank you very much. Um, uh, it's good to see you guys again. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. Uh, we'll see you in just about an hour or so for our service uh, online, uh, YouTube, Facebook, CalvaryChapel.com. You can join us live. We'll have two services tonight at both campuses, the East Campus, 6 o'clock, 7.15 at the West Campus. God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out. It's been good hanging out with you. The Lord bless you. We'll see you Saturday.